3: History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. Life doesn't come with a user manual. So when life stops working for you, it's pretty normal to feel stuck. Imagine somebody who spent, oh, say 25 years being really distracted overwhelmed by clutter, and fluctuating between being really into obscure ancient history and not being able to find the motivation to do the dishes. That person is me, and apparently, if there were a user manual to life, it might have told me that I have ADHD and should talk to my doctor about that. Therapists are about as close to a manual as we can get, folks who are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions and learn coping skills. BetterHelp has connected millions of people with licensed, registered therapists for convenient and secure online therapy. It's convenient and 100% accessible online. No waiting rooms, no traffic, and not even endless Googling of therapist near me. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with an appropriate therapist. And if it doesn't click, BetterHelp makes it easy to switch providers. Everyone deserves to feel their best, so get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com Persia. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com Persia. Hello everybody, welcome to the History of Persia, episode 13, Kingship 101. If you asked a dozen people to explain to you what a king is, you could probably get yourself a dozen different answers. On one hand, the obvious answer is that a king is someone who rules the government of a particular country as the sole head of state. But of course, that generic definition isn't all that accurate when you really start digging into things. Just in the modern world, you have absolute monarchies like Saudi Arabia, where responsibilities are meted out to different people, but the king is the end-all be-all of political power. And you have constitutional monarchies like the UK or Spain, where there is a monarch, and they do have some powers on paper, but they are hugely limited by the legislature, and even their legal executive powers are mostly delegated to cabinet ministers. Going further back in history, you have even more variation on what exactly the role of the monarch is and where their power comes from. A modern constitutional monarch is different from a modern absolute monarch, is different from a medieval divine right monarch who was different than a Chinese emperor with the mandate of heaven, who was also different from an Egyptian pharaoh who was believed to be a literal god, and was thus different from a Persian king, except for when the Persian king was in Egypt. Sound confusing enough yet? Let's unpack a bit of what that means. Last time I talked about ancient Iranian religion, and that was a decision I made because when I started writing this episode, I realized you needed a little bit of background in the religious terminology of ancient Iran to understand what comes next. So first things first when talking about Persian kings. 300 is not a documentary, and the Persians did not believe that their king was a god, nor did the Persian kings really try to portray themselves as deities. However, the king was also more than just a man, or at least he came to be recognized as such. Darius I, and to a lesser extent his successors, promoted an image of themselves as semi-divine. Herodotus reports that the Persian people were not supposed to pray to their gods for blessing, but to the king, who would intercede with the gods on their behalf. The king seems to have occupied a space between human and Yazada. Some researchers, like Professor Margaret Cool Root, have indeed argued that the kings held a position on equal footing with a minor god, and that the nobility existed on the step below that, but above the rest of humanity. I have a lot of respect for Dr. Root's scholarship, but I have to say I'm not convinced and fall into the camp that argues that the king was not divine, but was of divine significance, if that makes any sense. They were the intermediary step between their gods and their subjects, and had a privileged relationship with Ahura Mazda. Pierre Briant describes their role as the arbiter of good and bad, life and death, etc., in the world on behalf of the divine. But I'm a little bit ahead of myself. We haven't actually reached the way that kingship worked for the later Achaemenids yet. I'll have to talk more about that as I talk about how Darius portrayed himself. But for now, Cambyses is still on the throne in our narrative, before Darius made a series of sweeping reforms. Cambyses is the second king of the Persian Empire, son of Cyrus the Great, and a member of that theoretical Achaemenid dynasty that I've been talking about. These first few kings played by marginally different rules than their successors. So how much of that stuff traces back to Cyrus and Cambyses? As usual, it's hard to say because so much of our information comes from after Darius. However, we can infer just a few things. We know that Cyrus rose from a relatively minor seat of power in Anshan. We know that Darius increased royal authority and central control, and that Darius' association with divine right appears to have been more heavily handed than his successors, or at least more direct. From this, we can probably say that the early kings had a role where they were more favored by the gods than the average person, but probably not as strong a position as the divine mediator between human and god that would be seen later. I think a good place to start would be a comparison to divine right kingship as seen in medieval Europe, where the monarch ruled because god had chosen them. That was almost certainly mirrored in Persia. Maybe the position of the Persian king of kings could be envisioned as a step above that, or a half-step depending on how many stairs you're picturing. Just a little bit closer to divinity. The water is muddied a little bit because sacrifices were performed at Cyrus's tomb for centuries after his death, right up to the time of Alexander's conquest. Some try to argue that this was a show of reverence to Cyrus as a god, but in context it seems much more like reverence on the great king's behalf. Every month a ritual was performed at Cyrus's tomb that was originally ordered by Cambyses immediately following his father's death. A horse would be sacrificed at Cyrus' tomb by the group of priests that maintained it. Horse sacrifices, usually associated with the Yazada-slash-god Mithra in Iranian tradition, were a consistent feature associated with graves going all the way back to the Kurgan burials in the Yamnaya horizon, that culture that was associated with the earliest Indo-Europeans. Unless a lot of ancient Yamnaya warriors were also considered gods, the presence of sacrifices at a tomb says very little about the divine status of the deceased. For that matter, a lot of people in modern cultures still leave sacrifices at graves, be it candles, flowers, or food. It may trace back far into our culture, but it doesn't necessarily impart divine status. Some have tried to use the association with Mithra and horse sacrifice to argue that the Teisbid kings worshipped Mithra as their primary god rather than Ahura Mazda like Zoroastrians do, but it can just as easily be argued that they weren't sacrificed to Mithra in this particular case, or that they were sacrificed to Mithra in regard to his association with war and the afterlife. At the end of the day, it still just brings more questions about early Persian religion like I talked about last time. And just for the cherry on top, we can't even use Cambyses' tomb to add some context, because at some point in the last 2,500 years, we misplaced that one. That's right, we haven't actually got a clue where he was supposed to be interred. There are a couple of candidates, but none of them are particularly more convincing than the rest, so it remains an open question. We can possibly attribute some of the increased divinity of the king to Cambyses, or at least foreign influence brought on by Cambyses' actions. In a few episodes, I'll cover Cambyses' invasion and conquest of Egypt. In Egypt, the king was definitely a god on earth. Full stop. Beginning with Cambyses, when the Persian kings presented a message in the Egyptian language and hieroglyphs, they did so in the role of pharaoh, with all the style and tradition that went with that divinity included. That appears to have had fairly little impact in practice when the kings were not actually in Egypt, But the similarities, at least theoretically, imply that the Egyptian beliefs may have influenced Persian royal policy. So that leaves the religious role of the king as unclear as ever, but open to a handful of interesting possibilities. So what about his position as the political leader, and a figure in society beyond Persia and Iran? Well, it depends on where you're asking. If you're in Egypt, like I just said, Cambyses had all the roles, powers, and responsibilities of the divine pharaoh. If you're in Babylon, Cyrus and Cambyses had the position once held by the Chaldean kings. If you're in Lydia, their job is to provide security, wealth, and power like the Mermnad dynasty of Croesus and Aliates before them. And if you are in Judah, now the province of Yehud, the Persian kings were liberating saviors who had restored the people as the rightful rulers of their homeland. And on and on it goes. The Persian kings portrayed themselves differently in every satrapy and vassal kingdom under their control to appeal to local tradition and taste. As I've discussed previously, tastebid rule and control was tailored to each satrapy and conquered territory one by one. It was only after Darius that central authority was really put into place. So it stands to reason that Cyrus and Cambyses portrayed themselves even more like the kings and leaders in continuity with local tradition than their Achaemenid successors eventually would. That all sounds maddening to me. The position and powers of the king theoretically varying from province to province sounds like chaos. Fortunately for the kings of kings, this only seems to have been the case on paper or more literally, stone and clay. All sources seem to indicate that the Persian kings had absolute jurisdiction over their empire. They could and would overrule local practices as necessary, only really bound by the influence of powerful and wealthy nobles and priesthoods. Those two groups have always vexed otherwise autocratic rulers because they are the ones who can rival the monarch. With wealth and influence comes the ability to raise an army in rebellion or rouse the people to riot against their imperial rulers, and it was those risks that the great kings had to tread carefully for. It's not entirely relevant just yet, but as the narrative continues, we'll see that Egypt in particular was powerful and had an independent streak that led to calculated interactions with their Persian rulers and several outright rebellions. The idea of being kings with many hats, or crowns, was probably not new to Cyrus when he conquered an empire. As kings of Anshan, Cyrus and his ancestors were the rulers of an even more ancient Elamite territory that had been part of a much larger Elamite kingdom that had competed with Babylon and Assyria and stretched far into the interior of modern Iran. The high kings of this Elamite kingdom took the title King of Susa and Anshan, and many scholars have suggested that claiming two cities in their title was a way to indicate rule over both lowland cultures and the highland cultures in their territory, with the two cities corresponding to the two different regions. Cyrus and his dynasty would have been familiar with the traditions of the city they were now ruling, and likely modeled some of their own practices on those more ancient traditions. For the most part, though, the kings only had to mind their manners when they were actually out in the provinces. Generally, when they ruled from their strongholds in Iran and Babylon, they behaved and acted as Persian kings, while the satraps and local appointees carried out the rules and traditions of more local rulers when the king himself was not strictly needed. What was a Persian king then? It's really a question for the ages, in that we've been trying, somewhat unsuccessfully, to answer it since at least the 19th century. To some degree, the King of Kings was a composite of all of the different kingships he ruled over, taking things he liked from each, much like they did in their artwork and internal policy that I've discussed already on this show. To a much greater degree, the Office of King was a composite of a few select influences in and around their homeland in Persia. Of course, like everything else so far, this all requires projecting a little bit of what we can take from post-Darius kings, and then reasonably assume what existed before them. There's probably some baser, original idea of Persian kingship buried in there, but it's so hard to extract because we don't know all that much about their earliest influences either. Presumably, the earliest Persian kings reflected some of their pastoralist steppe heritage, But even when we look to people like the Scythians, who are sometimes treated as a time capsule of that ancient Iranian lifestyle, it yields very little information because their politics are so poorly understood. For many years, it was assumed that Persian kingship was modeled heavily on Median kingship because Media was the first kingdom that Cyrus assumed control over. That's great, and some Median practices probably did influence the new Persian court, but... Uh, We still don't have very much substantial information about the Medes and how their culture differed from the Persians, so that's not a helpful starting point. We know considerably more about the Elamites, who we've already talked a bit about today, as the Parsa province itself was former Elamite territory, they certainly had influenced the Persian kings. We know considerably more about the Elamites than the Medes, But naturally complicating things here is that we know considerably less about how their kingship operated. I've seen a couple of different explanations that the king was actually the first amongst equals. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the U.S., I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program, after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app, and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years, and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership all 25 languages for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Sharing power with other leaders in Elam, and also that the Elamite king had a very similar function to the more autocratic kings in the Near East. In all likelihood, it might have been both at different times. Regardless, in the centuries immediately preceding Cyrus the Great, Elam was significantly diminished and clearly within the Assyrian sphere of influence, at least culturally, if not politically. That brings me to Assyria, the third and by far the best understood system that we know influenced the Taspid kings. They actually sort of complicate things in this case because it's hard to tell what the Persians borrowed directly from Assyrian sources, what the Persians got because the Medes were also influenced by Assyria, and what came via Elamites being influenced by Assyria. One place where the Assyrian kingship and Persian kingship were clearly similar is in the relationship between the kings and the gods. I discussed this at the beginning of the episode, in both cases the king was not divine but did have a special relationship with their god. They were considered to be the perfect man chosen by god, be it Ashur or Ahura Mazda, to rule on Earth. From this divine preference and official doctrine that the monarch was actually perfect, they derived ultimate personal authority in their kingdoms. Or at least, that's how it worked in theory. Two phrases you'll read a lot of if you start delving into this topic are the performance of kingship and the practice of kingship or variations on those themes. Performance is how the kings portrayed themselves in official inscriptions and artwork, i.e. the god's perfect monarch. Practice is how that worked in real-life terms, and is much harder to identify for the Assyrians, let alone the more obscure tastepid Persians. Obviously, there was resistance by foreign peoples, rebellions within, and political maneuvering to maintain the status quo and economics, but... All of that is harder to get at because it's not what a lot of the written sources focused on. The Assyrian inscriptions naturally focused on the more glamorous performance of kingship and leave us guessing with how much political power the king actually wielded based on how much and how frequently that power was challenged or compromised. The same is generally true for the Persians. Those of you familiar with the Assyrians might be thinking that glamorous is an unlikely description for their kings but glamour, glory, and riches were certainly emphasized, and Cyrus clearly partook in those benefits of kingship too, as even his tomb is described in Greek sources like the most lavish room in a palace. In the ancient world, that did not at all contrast with the famed brutality of the Assyrian kings. And that brutality leads me to the last and most clearly represented trait of Persian kingship, their role in war. The Elamites and Assyrians clearly had this trait, but within the Persians you can probably trace it all the way back to their ancestors on the steppe and practices preserved by Scythian kings all the way through the classical period. These kings were, at their base, warlords of the highest order. Power, prestige, and right to rule were all demonstrated with military prowess, and glory or social status were earned that way as well. Iranian and Assyrian kings alike... Well before either group encountered the other, portrayed themselves as great warriors and heroes. They conquered enemies and claimed new territory to rule. They portrayed themselves in elaborate hunting scenes, and the Persians eventually adopted the Assyrian depiction of a lion hunt as the greatest display of martial prowess. For the Persian kings, the greatest symbol of this power was the bow, which the king was often shown holding in artwork and on coins. Herodotus even calls them toxarchos, meaning bow rulers. But unlike the Assyrians, the Persian kings did not seem to relish in the effects of those bows. The Assyrians famously left extensive inscriptions about how they brutally conquered their enemies and portrayed themselves as crushing their defeated foes in artwork. In the entire history of the first Persian empire, though, there are only two explicit depictions of the king conquering his enemies. The most obvious is Darius's Behistun inscription, which I'll discuss in more detail down the line. That is even called the only Persian victory art somewhat frequently, but there is another example, I think. That scene of the king on horseback with a spear or bow, leaping over fallen enemies to kill another. It first appeared on a seal associated with Cyrus I, grandfather to the Great. Though we have no similar scene dating from the rest of the Taspid period, the same motif appears almost identically later on, so it's likely that it existed throughout this period too, and we just don't have any surviving examples. But that's the only imagery associated with Persian victory that we have. Everything else, like the Cyrus Cylinder, tries its best to portray the king as a new and benevolent ruler, Maybe that was intended to contrast specifically with existing Mesopotamian images of kingship as a brutal conqueror, but it doesn't change that a fundamental part of the office of Persian king was the king's rule as the leader in a war. Of course, the kings had economic and political policy to make, but we hear very, very little about that because they themselves preferred to be portrayed as either divinely chosen or powerful warriors. We can get an inkling of how those responsibilities worked from the building projects initiated by Cyrus, like restoring the walls of the Esagil Temple and city walls in Babylon, and constructing Pisargadai. Building projects created jobs, which paid food to the workers and their supervisors. Building projects like Pisargadai brought new luxuries to a region, brought new merchants and laborers to supply those luxuries, and further merchants and laborers to supply the other workers. We also know that there was a spree of canal building in Mesopotamia around Cyrus' time, which allowed more farmers to produce more food and feed more wealth and surplus into the growing economy of the empire. It can be hard to piece together how many of these effects were considered by the king, or if they were even intentional, but there can be no doubt that the tradition of kings undertaking these projects developed to fuel their political and economic power. What little we do know about the king's political activities and day-to-day life at the head of a royal court, we know in reference to his subordinates. One feature that has prompted some discussion is Herodotus' account of a court messenger, a sort of herald who acted as a go-between for the king and the rest of the court. You see, the king himself was almost unapproachable. Only his inner circle were supposed to approach and speak to him without invitation, while everyone else, even wealthy magnates and other nobles, went through his messenger first. And if the king decided not to see you that day, all of your communication was filtered through the messenger. If Herodotus is reporting this accurately, and there's not a ton of reason to doubt him here, then this messenger could have been extremely influential, controlling communication with the great king. The only problem with Herodotus' account of the royal messenger system is that he lived just after the Persian Wars in Greece, in the time of Xerxes and Artaxerxes I, so any details about the Persian court in his writing may reflect the reforms of the later Achaemenids rather than the actual life of the Tayspid kings. Herodotus does ascribe the origins of the messenger system to Daokis, the legendary founder of the Median kingdom which does suggest that the system was very ancient, but Deokes was also, as I said, legendary, so it's hard to know if Herodotus is getting that right. We know that similar systems were employed by Mesopotamian kings and Egyptian pharaohs well before Cyrus' time, so maybe there is a grain of truth to Herodotus' story. The second example of subordinates from the Tayspid period comes from the story of how the Tayspid line actually ended and Darius ascended to the throne. So I guess, spoiler warning for events that happened 2,500 years ago. Darius was part of a group of seven nobles who entered the royal palace and assassinated the king, at that time Cyrus's younger son Bardia. These notables, according to Herodotus, entered the palace at night with the permission of the guards, but they were held up by court eunuchs, probably servants or civil officials, who accused the guards of negligence. The conspirators killed the eunuchs and moved on to the king. In Theseus' version of the same story, the conspirators were aided and allowed to pass through the palace by an official named Bagapates, who held all of the keys for the compound. In either case, this tells us that there were certain protocols that even the highest nobles, possibly including cousins of the king, had to observe when entering the palace so that they were accounted for and the king was protected. Pierre Briant suggests that we can safely interpret this as an actual fixture of the Tastebit court because it was not always the case under later kings. The same ancient Greek sources tell us that certain members of the highest noble families had almost unrestricted access to the kings beginning in the reign of Darius, and the lack of that privilege in the stories about earlier kings tells us that it was probably a Darian invention. Now, we've reached the point in my outline for writing this episode where it says, Queen? Mark. I do want to discuss the role of the queen, but since I'm splitting everything about culture up between pre- and post-Darius traditions, that basically is impossible right now. We know very little about the Persian queens in general, and when we look exclusively at the queens before Darius, there's basically no information about what they actually did. It's just a bunch of names and places of birth, but even that can tell us something. What it tells us is that the Persian kings, like many kings in the ancient world, were polygamous. They took many wives for many purposes. Some, like the Median princess Amatis, who married Cyrus, or the Egyptian princess that Cambyses attempted to marry, were to forge political connections with newly conquered territory. There were also those, like Cyrus's wife Cassandra, who were Persians. It may be that a Persian mother conferred more legitimacy on a son who was heir to the throne, but we can't be too sure because of the Tayspid kings, only Cyrus ever actually had kids that we know of. Of all the later Achaemenid kings, only two had mothers who were not clearly Persian, but both were from Babylon and had possibly Persian names, so it's entirely plausible that they were just Persian nobility living in Mesopotamia. That lends some credence to the idea that the heir to the throne was supposed to have a Persian mother. So let's talk about that as the last point today, because it leads nicely into next week's episode. The heir to the throne. Now that we've killed off our first monarch, we should probably establish what makes someone qualified to become the new king of kings. Earlier, I talked about how the king was Ahura Mazda's choice of a perfect human ruler for Earth. But that's sort of a belief that came once the king had his throne— To get to that point and prove that he had Ahura Mazda's approval, there were some preliminary qualifications for the king of Persia. The first clearly seems to be bloodlines. Being the son of the previous king doesn't seem to cut it. You also need to come from an ethnically Persian queen to take the top job. From an ancient perspective with no understanding of genetics, this does seem to make a little bit of sense. Physical appearance and some personality traits run in families, so why not divine approval and leadership capability? In theory, at least, it made sense to them, and it may explain why the Persians developed a habit of marrying close relatives. It kept the lineage strong and limited potential rival claimants to the throne, at least in their minds. Remember, there's only a very loose grasp of genetics here. So the son of the last king, and the highest-ranking or favored Persian wife qualifies to be the next king. But what if there's more than one? That was the case when Cyrus died. He left behind two sons by his wife Cassandine, Cambyses and Bardia. It's easy to assume that it was just a good old medieval-style primogeniture where the oldest living son inherits everything because Cambyses is generally recognized as the second king of the empire. But there's a little bit more to it than that. Cyrus clearly took steps during his life to recognize Cambyses as his chosen heir. Most notably, he named him King of Babylon for the first year after completing his conquest. This was not a status of co rulership, but a royal title to indicate that Cambyses will inherit royal responsibilities. Not unlike English kings declaring their heirs as the Prince of Wales in the medieval period, if you're more familiar with that. However, this doesn't mean that Bardia, Cambyses' little brother, got the short end of the stick, at least, not entirely. In fact, he inherited a huge swath of his father's territory, and was given control over parts of Bactria, eastern Iran, and Persian-controlled Central Asia. Essentially, the Iranian part of the empire. Pierre Briant, amongst other respected scholars, tend to describe this as a consolation prize for Bardia. But that consolation prize was almost half of the empire. Traditionally, historians have treated Bardia as a sort of super satrap over the region, still technically subservient to his brother. But I'm not so sure about that, and my own thoughts and theories about this relationship have actually shifted and developed while writing this episode, so I think I'll give myself two weeks to do a little bit more research and reading and fully flesh out the relationship between Cambyses and Bardia for the next episode. So join me then, and we'll discuss what Cyrus's children and heirs did with his empire once he was gone. In the meantime, if you decide that you want more information about the show, check out historyofpersiapodcast.wordpress.com for more information, maps so that you can visualize all of this stuff, my bibliography, and the Achaemenid family tree. If you like what you've heard so far, please leave a review on your podcast app of choice, and follow or share the show around on social media. On Facebook and Instagram, I'm the History of Persia Podcast, and on Twitter, it's just at History of Persia. And as always, your feedback is welcome and appreciated. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of The History of Persia.